Thank you all for coming tonight. My name is uh, Tim, and I'm one of the uh, leaders here at the Vine Church Pool. It's great to see you all here tonight. You've had a good day? Yeah, you've been working? You enjoyed the sunshine at all? <laughs> Love it, oh, okay. We, I was privileged. We, we went out for breakfast this morning, didn't we? Uh, to Sultan, so uh, a blessed life I live uh, as well. Um, We've got Daryl, as many of you know, because you're supposed to be here. We've got Daryl with us tonight. Uh, it'd be great just to start off by just thanking him for coming. So I just want to thank you, Daryl, for coming. Should we give him a, a round of applause for coming over? Um, just to let you know, if you usually come to the Vine, uh, you will probably usually go to the toilets that way. But actually, the toilets are uh, being refurbished over the summer holidays so you need to go if you need a toilet go at the uh, go down there down the steps and turn right and uh, we're gonna have a great evening tonight I'm sure of that it's gonna be fun uh, we're gonna be inspired and we're just gonna have a great uh, evening together bless Daryl come on up uh, we're gonna just let you know the plan for the evening I'm just gonna ask Daryl a few questions let's get to know him a bit better and uh, then Daryl's going to be talking, and then we're going to have an opportunity at the end for some questions. So if you've got, you're thinking uh, throughout that you've got some questions, hold on to the end, and um, um, you can ask your questions. Even maybe silly questions like what team, football team do you support? What football team do you support? Leeds United. Leeds United. Oh. Somebody's got to. Someone's got to, yes. <laughs> but if you've got questions at the end, all seriousness. We will be, uh, you can answer, ask those questions as well. Let's just start actually by praying. Is that okay? Father God, I thank you uh, for gathering us tonight. I thank you for every single person in this room. I thank you that you value them. And Lord, that you love them. And I pray, Father God, that tonight we'll have a great night together. I pray, Father God, through, uh, through working through Daryl, Lord, and his whole of life, and Lord, through what he says tonight, I pray that he will inspire us and encourage us and challenge us all at the same time. Lord God, we pray you'll have your way amongst us tonight. And I pray for the whole town of Paul. I pray that Jesus will be uh, lifted up and that Jesus will change lives in this town. Amen. Fantastic. So, Daryl, uh, what's your whole name, Daryl? Tunningly. Daryl Tunningly. If you meet another one, we're related. Oh, are you? It's not yes, many of you. It's only us. Fantastic. Um, if you regularly come to the Vine Church, I, ask, I start off by asking three questions. Okay. Ready for this. The first question is, what color is your toothbrush? Blue. Oh, blue. Mine is as well. Solid guy, solid guy. <laughs> you, can tell, you can tell a lot by someone's toothbrush. You've got a multicolored one. They're a bit like everywhere, everywhere. Okay. <laughs> Second question is, what do you do in your downtime? What do you do to relax and to chill? Oh, I like watching box sets. Uh, if I've got a bit of downtime to... What box set are you going for at the moment? Uh, we're watching uh, Homeland at the moment. I Homeland. missed it first time round. So I'm watching Homeland. Like that. So, yeah. yeah, Nicholas Brody. Oh, naughty man. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I'm enjoying that. Box set, great. Yeah. Uh, and the third question is, what is your favourite Bible verse, book in the Bible, and why? I get asked that all the time, and it's impossible <laughs> to answer. So, but Acts, just Acts. Acts, yeah. Yeah, just the, the whole of Acts um, is and my is absolute... That? It was the first book I read. Not people normally go to the, the, the Gospels as the first book they read. Yes. Acts was the first in prison. Acts, the book of Acts, because I was just flicking through. Or Job was the first story I read. But after becoming a Christian, Job. 
Job, yeah. That's intense, yeah. I'll tell you about that later. But yeah, but after becoming a Christian, I sat down and I started, I started reading Acts and I was yeah. like, oh, I like this. Great. Oh, I want some of this. I want to see some of this. And that started birthing in me. Yeah. Yeah. That passion for evangelism and church and growing church. Yeah. And tell us a bit more about yourself. I know you're going to be sharing a bit mm-hmm. later throughout um, this talk this evening, but tell us more about yourself. Myself. Where did um, you grow up? I, I grew up Nottingley in West Yorkshire on an estate called Warwick Estate. Yeah. Uh, if anybody knows the area when I'm up north and I'm. Does anyone know the I'm area? No, no, but no, anybody that no. does, whenever you, you are say... In the south. You whenever, are in I the know, south. When, whenever you say... Anything past London is north, Yeah. just to clarify. Yeah, there's a whole other world. Yeah. But um, whenever you say Warwick Estate, people that know it go, ooh. Um, it's just a bad place to be, a bad place to grow up, a bad place yeah. to live. Um, half the estate doesn't even exist anymore. They bulldozed it. So wow. the house I was born in isn't even there anymore. Wow. Um, we went back. The BBC did a, a, a documentary called Inside Out. And we were back on the estate filming, and it was dead quiet. Nobody was about. And one of the uh, production crew said, oh, it's actually quiet around here. It doesn't, it doesn't seem as bad as, you know, you've been saying. Just as they said that, two lads came past pushing an old silver cross pram with a 50-inch TV in it. <laughs> they went, hey, it's Daryl. And that were it then. Jungle drums kicked off. Half the estate pulled out. They thought they were going to get their equipment nicked. It was hilarious. <laughs> great, great. So you were born on that estate, yeah. and then so you lived there most of your life? Most of my life. Went to the local high school, Nottingham High School, yeah. which again is notorious. My wife now, Charlotte, she's a teacher, and she did some of her student teaching time at Nottingham High School, so she knows it really well. That's cool. Yeah. Great. And uh, last, last question is, what were, if you could think of one thing that you look back and think, wow, God, you did that, what would that be? Oh, there's so many. Um... One, one of the ones that spring to mind, um, I was asked to preach at a Catholic miracle rally. Okay. I'm an evangelical Pentecostal preacher, yeah. depending on what Where was that? Where in. was that? It was in London. Okay. Uh, it was at the Quaker House in London. So there's two and a half thousand Catholics. A good chunk of them were tr- from the traveler communities yeah. uh, in there. So I was asked to preach at this. So the, the, the keynote preacher at the Catholic miracle rally. It's the first time they'd had a non-Catholic preaching. And obviously, I wasn't allowed to take communion because I wasn't Catholic. So, but within that context, I'm sat there thinking, what is God going to do? Because I I knew what the theological differences were. You know, I graduated Bible college. I get what the differences are. I get where we disagree. But I also know where we agree. And those guys love Jesus. They really, really love Jesus. On the first day of the Catholic rally, the first night, 200 confirmed healings on the first night and there was 400 on the second but on the first night the 200 uh, we selected some to come and share testimony of what God had done for them this guy gets up and says God has restored my hearing he had two hearing aids that he'd taken out he said I can hear God has restored my hearing so I said okay let's let's test it so I sent him to the other side of the stage and I said in a second I'm going to write something down we're going to switch all the microphones off and I'm going to say it and the normal speaking voice, and see if he can hear me, and I'm going to ask him to repeat it. And I wrote on a piece of paper, Jesus loves you all, and I held it up for everybody to see. Turned all the mics off, and I just said, and I said, give him a microphone now, can you repeat what I just said? And he screamed out, Jesus loves you all. And everybody went up in ruptures, applause, that wow. praising God. But the icing on the cake, when he came back over to me, he said, I should have mentioned this before, by the way. I'm a GP, and he got his wallet out and showed me his ID. He was a doctor. 
Wow. So it's like instantaneous medical evidence that he is he's healed. Wow. Wow. Seriously, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming tonight. And um, I, it's over to you. Is that okay? Oh, yeah, that's great. great. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome. Everybody, I know I said it already. Um, I had a, a breakfast this morning, which I've never had before in my life. It was a, instead of a full English, it was a full Dorset. <laughs> I didn't know such a thing existed. But apparently it does. A full Dorset. It was no different to a full English in any way, shape or form. It was just called a full Dorset. But it was rather nice. What was the name of the place we went to? So that was great, that. It was great. I had to resist the urge to throw my daughter in the pool after. But yeah. I'm joking. Half. I want to talk to you now, tonight, primarily, um, about reaching people for Christ. I, I'm an evangelist. I'm a church leader, but I'm also an evangelist. Primarily an evangelist. People say, can an evangelist lead a church? Yes, they can. They can't pastor one but they can lead a church. You need somebody on your team who is pastoral because I'm not in any way, shape. Come to me for a hug and I'll give you a kick in the pants. It's, that, it's the difference. So if you need hugging, I'll send you to somebody else. Uh, usually my wife. She's pastoral. She's brilliant. So if you need like, you know, slowly, 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 go see Charlotte because if you come to me, you're getting truth whether you like it or not. So I want to talk to you about reaching people for Christ. My passion I want to share some of my journeys as we go through this message. But my passion is born out of a fact that I shouldn't be alive. I shouldn't be here. Overdosed countless times. Shot at. Stabbed. There was one occasion I went to do a meet-up near Hull Docks about a shipment of drugs that were coming through. I took an associate's car because he was supposed to do the meet, but he got locked up on a separate charge. I pulled up, started talking to the guy, wound the window down when he used to wind them down like that, remember? Manual, winding it down. I heard the crack of gunfire, the headrest on my driver's seat exploded and the back window went through. The bullet had passed between our two heads. An inch either way, it would have killed him or killed me. Forget what you see on TV, Hawaii Five-0, all the rest of it. I had a gun in the car. What I did was fill my shorts, put it in first and go. You don't know where the shots come from. You don't know whether they're shooting at him, shooting at you, shooting because you think I'm my mate because I'm in his car. You don't know. I shouldn't be alive. So every day to me, from God is a day borrowed. It's not a day owed. And I've been left here for one purpose. And that is to live in obedience to him and his word. And that is the only reason you're here too. Do me a favor, put your hand over your heart. Can you feel it beating? Those beats are only happening because God allows them to. He allows them to. The Bible says in other places, but Proverbs primarily, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. And preachers have diluted that down over recent years to say, oh, it's a healthy respect. No, no, it's not. You see, when people encounter the angel of the Lord in Scripture, it's fear. It's face on the floor, pardon my French, cacking your pants, fear. Real fear. And once you figure that out, then God turns around to you and says, now, fear not nor be afraid. Because I'm the only thing you have to be fearful of, and I'm telling you, I love you. So get out there and do what I've told you to do, which is reach people for Christ. I'm doing my own slides tonight. I feel that technical. Our life's mission, our life's mission is to lead people 
it's got some missing, I think, is to lead people to become fully devoted followers of Christ. There is no other remit. There is no other job description. That is our life's mission. And I don't care how mature you are in years, how close you are to retirement in the Lord, if you're still breathing, you're still here for a purpose. I don't care how young you are. If people tell you you're too young, that's not what Scripture says. In fact, Paul in Scripture says, don't let them put you down because you're young. Crack on anyway. Because you know what? The old ones need a bit of enthusing. So you crack on. I've just hit, well, I say it's just hit 40. I'm officially in my 40s now. It's got that far beyond just hitting 40 that I'm now in my 40s. And my body keeps reminding me. It keeps, it's okay to laugh, by the way. I don't, I, don't get, I don't get offended. I figured out that you know you're getting old when you start making a certain noise when you bend down to tie your shoelaces. And you come back up and you make that. that that's when you know when you've hit an age milestone, when that noise comes out of your mouth. Or your kids poke you in your belly and say, what's that? You having a baby? If you're thinking, that's not happened to me, wait. <laughs> Ephesians 4, 11 to 12a says, If God, if it, it was God, God himself, it was God, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of ministry. That's the part that's often forgotten. I'm an evangelist. I was given to the church for that one purpose, to equip you in reaching, equip you in functioning, equip you in serving, to motivate you, to inspire you, to annoy you, to irritate you. That is my job. There's different styles of evangelism. There's Barnabas, the encourager, who come alongside you, hug you, walk with you. Paul, he would just kick you in the pants. Unfortunately for you, that's the camp I sit in. That's kind of where I am. In this room, in this church, will be the fivefold ministry gifts, whether you realize it or not, whether they've been recognized yet or not, whether they've been identified yet or not. They will be because the scripture tells us that it was God who gave, God who gave some to be apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. They're here. Now, whether it says it on your office door or not makes no difference. It's not about a job description. It's about a ministerial function, a role, something that you are called to be and do. I had a, a leader, a pastor in my life for, for many years who he had an uncanny knack of identifying those gifts in people. He could put his finger on it after just a couple of days of being with them. He could put his finger on it and he was never wrong. It was never wrong. He always knew where that person's gifting sat. And there's even online tests you can do. I wouldn't. But there are online tests you can do that tell you who you are. I wouldn't. But there are. You've heard it said a thousand times by a thousand preachers far greater than me. God doesn't call the prepared, but he prepares the called. Do you understand that? You can say amen as much as you want. I'm a Pentecostal preacher. If you don't, I'm preaching longer. <laughs> God doesn't call the prepared, but he does prepare the call. Do you understand that? Do you know that you're called? Do you know that you are called right now, right here today, tonight? Do you know that he's calling you constantly, constantly knocking at your door? Never stops. You are constantly on his mind. Never 
Never is it waning. Constantly at the forefront of his thoughts. Constantly. Every single day. And he's waiting. He is waiting. How do I know God is a patient God? Because I am not a patient man. If I had to wait that long, I'd be screaming at you. But very patiently and calmly and graciously, he just keeps gently knocking at your door. Say, no, son, it's not what I've called you to do. No, daughter, that's not what I've called you to do. That's not who I've called you to be. Why have you allowed that into your life? That's not supposed to be there. Bring it to me and let's put it to death. See, everybody knows the journey we're supposed to go on. The journey through Romans. If you've read the book of Romans, if you don't know the journey, I break it down into three sections. It's condemnation. I love preaching in prison still because you can skip that bit. They know already. They're condemned. Some people, usually wealthy people, and I've preached in Monaco, they need reminding that they're under condemnation because they think they can buy the way out of it. But we're under condemnation. When you come to Christ... Justification, you've heard it said a thousand times, justified, it's just as if I'd never sinned. You're put under the justification of Christ. When God looks at you, he sees the sacrifice of his son, and there you go. And that is where most people in church today stay. They don't move to step three, which is sanctification. A life of holy living. A life that sets you apart. The early Christians weren't called Christians. They were called people of the way. Because the way they lived was so different to the way anybody else lived. It's time we became people of the way. With a sanctified life. Listening to the calling. Understanding that you don't have to be prepared before you're called. You can be called and then he will prepare you. In Acts my favorite book, Acts 4.13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. This is the Sanhedrin, the most learned people theologically of their day, looking at these men, saying, well, these are just bog-standard ordinary men. The only distinguishing factor upon them in their life that the Sanhedrin could pick out was, but they've been with Jesus. And the reason I like that piece of scripture so much is because when you dig into understanding Greek a little bit, there's one of those words that's not correctly translated. It doesn't correctly give you the right message. And it's the word ordinary. And it's from the word Idiotes, which directly translated is ignoramus, ignorant, unlearned person, an idiot. That gives you a better idea of the Sanhedrin's impression of Peter standing before them. Well, these are just idiots that have been with Jesus. And when you understand that and you read it, for me anyway, when I understood that and I studied it, I thought, that's me. I'm just an idiot. That happens to have been with Jesus. That is the only distinguishing thing in my life. That is the only redeemable thing that anybody can look at me and say anything good about is the fact that I've been with Jesus. That's it. So welcome to the club. We are all but idiots. In comparison to the wisdom of God, the knowledge of heaven, we are all, I don't care how many PhDs you may have under your belt, we are all under God but idiots. 
idiotes, every single one of us. But if you've been with Jesus, oh, that's different. Idiots who have been with Jesus. The people that won me to Christ, the people that led me to Christ, they loved Jesus. But on paper, it shouldn't have worked. It just shouldn't have. It was in a prison chapel, HMP Walls. By this point in my prison career, I've been starred up. I've been put on category A because I've been violently assaulting inmates, violently assaulting prison officers. I've been moved and shipped around the prison system from one to the other. I was shipped down to Leicester, and to get shipped out of there, I threw somebody off the second story landing to get myself shipped out of there as quick as I could. It worked. He was fine. He hit the safety netting and he needed to change his pants. But apart from that, it was all right. It just had the desired effect. The governor said, get him out of my prison now. And he got me moved back up north to Hull. But then I got put on category A, got starred up. Got a job in the welding shop, which it turned out was a cushy number. Because I was making, there were no hanging baskets you have outside your front door. I was making those and the prison officers were paying me tobacco to make them extra ones. So it was all right. I was winning. £12.50 a week and free backy. It was good. So there I am working away, minding my own business. This lad, another inmate, a trustee, or Muppets as we like to call them back then, coming around with a clipboard. There's always somebody with a clipboard in prison. We're trying to get you on an anger management course or an education program. We're trying to sign you up to something. So when he came up to me, he went, do you want to go on an alpha course? No idea what he was talking about. So I said, well, what's an alpha course? He said, oh, it's in the chapel. As soon as he said the word chapel, I put two and two together. I said, look, get out of my face, sunshine, before I slap you. I knew he was a Bible basher. I weren't interested. And he did the best speeding on Zylus impression I've ever seen in my life. Andale, andale, and he's gone. And I thought no more of it. And I'm in the workshop again the next day. And this kid's coming around with this clipboard again. And he was coming towards me. So I'm just stood there thinking, you cheeky beggar. I didn't say beggar. Something else. I've diluted it down because I'm a Christian now. So I was waiting for this kid to get within slapping range. I was just going to turn around and hit him. Because I warned him the day before. That's who I was at that point in my life. My reputation, the way I lived, you didn't get warned twice. You're lucky if you got warned once. But just as he was about to get within slapping range, he blurted something out. He went, you get Wednesday afternoon out of bang up and you get free coffee and you get free biscuits? I'll see you on Wednesday, sunshine. No bang up, free coffee, free biscuits, two right I was going. Not only did I go, I did my very first ever evangelistic act. I went and rounded up all my mates from workshop and took them all with me. So we turned up on this course, drug dealers, armed robbers, murderers. One of them was a guy called Harry Goldsmith. He ran around with craze. He had a hilarious story. He was going to do one last job. He was going to turn over this Jewish diamond dealer. One last job he had planned. Nicked a car, went and did the job, come out, left the car running, went in, did the job, come out, somebody nicked the car that he'd nicked. <laughs> and the way he told the story, it was like, you for today, you can't trust them. We all was like, how do you nick the car in the first place? That's not the point. <laughs> so these are the characters on this course. So when they started talking to us about Jesus, we just gave them it both barrels. We were abusive, cheeky, but abusive. Usual arguments, God doesn't exist. Even if he did, what's he got to do with me? What can you possibly know about life and living? You've been locked in a nunnery for 900 years. You're older than Yoda. And, and that was the tame stuff. 
And the thing that stopped me dead in my tracks wasn't what they said, so I wasn't really listening, but it was how they said it. You see, they came back at me with love and compassion. And I was sat there feeling genuinely dead on the inside. All I had was darkness, hate, bitterness, anger. That's all that was left. So when they hit me with that love and compassion, it was like getting slapped in the face with a wrecking ball. And I thought, do you know what, Daryl? For once in your life, shut up and listen to somebody else. You see, they'd earned the right to be listened to because they loved me unconditionally first. They earned the right. There's a clue in the design. Two hands, two ears, two eyes, two feet, only one mouth. They saw my potential. They listened to my words, whether they were hurtful or not. They went twice as far. They gave twice as much their time that they didn't have to give. And they earned the right to speak. So I was in a place willing to listen. And when I listened, it started to make sense. Week three of the course, Alpha course, if you haven't done it, I'd recommend it. If you haven't used it, why not? It's free. HDB's got loads of money. They'll just pay for it. Week three, why did Jesus die? Is the title. The question to me was, why would he for a scumbag like you? How many lives have you destroyed with the drugs that you sold? What about all those people you hurt, people you physically took your own fists and weapons to and you hurt them? What could God possibly see in you that's worth redeeming? So that was where my thought process was going. And it turned out I had nothing to give to God apart from my life, all I could give. And so I did. End of the course, got to myself, given us a Bible. I'd never had a Bible before. I bought this on the day I got out of prison. It was the 4th of August, 2000. So coming up on 18 years ago, I've been in full-time ministry. And I bought this Bible. First bit of money I had. Bought this Bible. And it's not left my side since. It's a bit dog-eared, massively highlighted, scribbled on. But it's well used. It's definitely well used. And I flicked through it. And it dropped open on a book in the Old Testament, which I now know, you know, because I've been to theological college, is the book of Job. But then I saw the word spelt J-O-B. So what would you think it said? Exactly. I thought, funny place to find one. I'll have a read. <laughs> so I start reading the book of Job, and I figure out that this, it was a modern translation. It was a good news Gideon Bible. And it was like, this guy's got everything. He's, he's like the Simon Cowell of the Old Testament, this fellow. He's got everything. He's loaded. Every car you could wish for. They just called them camels back then. But he had every one, every model, every make. And then in this relatively short period of time, he loses everything. And I mean everything. His, his kids are killed. He loses his health. He loses his wealth. His friends turn against him. His wife. Everything that can go wrong goes wrong in his life. 
But through the whole process of it, even when he's encouraged to, he won't say a bad word against God. In fact, he finishes the process. God gives him back way more than he ever lost in the first place. But he makes this statement. He says, I thought I knew God, but now I truly do. And I'm just sat there in my naivety thinking, that is mental. Nobody goes through all of that without their faith in God being shaken and end up with a stronger faith in God than when they started. What was it that he'd figured out? What was it that took him through that journey? What did he have that I'm missing? It can't have been stubbornness. Nobody will stubbornly stick to something. Maybe women. But nobody else. I'm not getting out of here alive. Nobody else. Well, did you move them rocks outside? No. What has he figured out? I thought, I want to know. So I sat on my bunk and I said the first real prayer I'd ever said in my life. And I can't repeat it word for word because it had quite a lot of swear words in it. But you know what? God speaks every language, including blue. What he's looking for is a genuine plea. He doesn't care how you word it. You don't need to speak Christianese to be able to pray. You do know that, don't you? You don't need to be able to speak Christian. In fact, I try and discourage in my church the speaking of Christianese. For example, the use of amen in the most random of places. Exactly. <laughs> when you go to Tesco, they don't pay and they give you a receipt and you go, amen, brother, and walk out, do you? You don't. You cheers. Thank you. Yes. So I try and encourage people to use English. Instead of amen, throw in a have it. Why not? Finish your prayer with have it. It's the same thing, just in English. Try it in your next prayer group. Watch the faces. Classic. I said the prayer when I woke up the next morning. Everything changed. Everything. The thought of my cigarettes, my tobacco, my, my rollies, my Rizzlers, everything made me want to be sick. And I had to get rid. I grew up all my tobacco, all my paraphernalia, and I put it out the cell window. And when I put it out of the cell window, I started to calm down a bit. But then the thought of my weed, my cannabis popped in my head. Because I had enough for myself for a couple of spliffs. As soon as that popped in my head, the nausea came back. But with a vengeance, I knew what I had to do. And I went and got my stash and I put it out the cell window. Whoever was on yard cleaning duty that morning would have thought it was Christmas come early. I didn't think it through all the way. But as soon as it had gone, the nausea went. Then I noticed I didn't just feel different. It was more than that. So I went to get a wash and a shave. I was like, Daryl, calm down. Get a wash, get a shave. Obviously, don't do that anymore. And, you know, I want to be like Jesus. And I noticed I looked different. There was a joy that was trying to break its way out of my chest. If I know how to dance a jig, I'd have done one there and then in the cell. And it was at that moment they unlocked us for breakfast. And the lad next door to me, Duddy, he was a big, we ran the wing together, but he was a bigger nutter. He was the only person I was wary of, because he would just snap for no reason whatsoever. He took one look at me and went, what's wrong with you? He's from Durham. What's wrong with you? I said, I don't know, I'm just happy. I didn't know how to explain it. And they gave me this look, you know, oh, time for a padded cell, that kind of a look. He thought I'd flipped. I thought, I've got to speak to somebody that can tell me what's going on. So, I mean, the way it worked back then in prison, if you want to go to the toilet, you put an application, you go in three days. It was just the system. 
So I went to the PO's office, principal officer on the wing. I said, look, I need an application to see the chaplain. So I wrote down everything that happened the night before, everything that happened that morning. The PO read it, and he rang the chaplain. He was like, get on wing now, he's freaking out. He thought I was going to flip out on wing, and he didn't want to have to call in riot squad in to calm me down. So the chaplain comes, and he's full regalia. He was like the Bishop of London. He was fully made up. And... Um, he comes on and I just told him. I didn't even wait to go in the office. But I stood outside the PO's office and I just told him everything. Both barrels. And he paused for what felt like three months. It was probably three seconds. And I'll never forget the words out of his mouth. He said, the man that went to bed last night is not the same man that's standing here this morning. You're a new creation. And as soon as he said those words, I started blubbing. And I'm not talking a little bit sniffly. I'm talking snot flinging, tears flying, wailing. And when I started, he started. And the next thing we know, we're hugging. So I'm standing on the wing in front of all of the lads, bawling my eyes out, hugging a bloke in a frock. <laughs> so you better believe it got their attention. I turn around to them having breakfast on the wing, the pit, the Chaplain says to the PO, I need more time with him. I need to take him to the chapel. The PO says, PO just been stood watching. He didn't know what to do. He said, I don't care where you take him, just get him off my wing. I turned around to the lads who were having the breakfast and I said, look, no more, I'm done. If you've got any, I, I had about 30 ounces of backy being held, phone cards, all sorts of contraband being held by different people. I said, if you've got anything of mine, keep it, you can have it. If you owe me anything, forget it. It's done. Jesus has saved me. I didn't know any other way to say it. And all the lads knew what I was. They knew my reputation. They wouldn't dare say anything derogatory. But they, what they all did, it was like a rehearsed Scooby-Doo moment. They all kind of looked up from the porridge and, oh. <laughs> and it took them a while to realize I was serious, that I was done with that life. That was 20 years ago. Came out of prison 18 years ago. Two years living as a Christian in prison. I got shipped out to another prison. It's another miraculous story on its own. Got a job as chapel orderly. We started running Alpha courses because all we had in those days was Nicky Gumbel on VHS cassette. And for some reason, the lads inside had trouble connecting with a posh barrister from London with poodle hair. You know, it was, there wasn't a real connection there. So... We translated it from posh into convict and did the first prison alpha. Paul Cowley likes to pretend it was him. It wasn't. And ever since then, I've lived all, all out. All out for him. And it's taken me on an amazing journey. It's taken me around the world to places I've seen signs, wonders and miracles, to expressions of church in countries prisons, churches, schools, all around the world. But it's still local church. Because local church was God's plan to bring salvation to the world. Yes, I've preached on huge platforms. I've stood up the platform at the Albert Hall and preached to five and a half thousand leaders from 60 nations around the world. But I've also preached to a room of 12 convicts in a supermax prison in Canada and seen them all give their life to Christ and baptize them in a laundry bin. I've seen every facet. And it's the local church, idiots who have been with Jesus, that will make 
the biggest change to this nation. This nation needs to experience revival, but that revival can only begin in the church. It can only begin in the church. Revival isn't for the world, it's for the church. Salvation's for the world, revival is for the church. It's for us to fall back in love with God. It's for us to remember that our hearts only beat because he's allowing them to beat. It's for us to remember that when we go, "Ah," it's because he allows it. It's to remember that he can literally click his metaphorical fingers and we end. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Just idiots who have been with Jesus, who understand and know the importance of the mission that he left us with. How am I doing for time? I forgot to look. All right. So I carry on. Happy days. Idiots who have been with Jesus. Idiots who have been with Jesus, you can tell them by two things. Number one, they give their whole lives to him. They don't segment him. They don't departmentalize him. They don't slot him into a box on a Sunday. Men's brains are made up of boxes. We have boxes. That's what we do. We, we departmentalize everything. And it drives women mad because we actually have a nothing box. We do have a nothing box where we're doing nothing. We're thinking nothing. So when the wife says, what are you doing? You say, nothing. What are you thinking about? Nothing. They think you're lying or trying to avoid a conversation. You're literally not. You're just in your nothing box. That's all you're doing. Nothing. Women's brains, it's like the information superhighway. Everything's connected to everything and every emotion and every experience and every memory. Everything joins up to everything else. Men, nothing. But people who are marked out by being with Jesus give their whole lives to him. They don't departmentalize him. They don't have a box in their brain to stick him in. They don't roll him out on a Sunday and wheel him back in for Monday morning. They are, it's their very DNA. It's the air that they breathe. It's it's their heart dances to his rhythm. In Luke 5, 8 to 10, it says, When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. The fear. Then Jesus said to him, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Peter responded with fear. Jesus said, Don't be afraid. Stand up. Come with me. I'm going to teach you to catch men, mankind, man, woman, children, the lot of them. And he left everything, everything of his old life behind and followed Jesus. And you can come up with a million reasons of why that's not possible. I've got bills to pay. I've got a mortgage to pay. So have I. So have I. Do you know what my pension plan is? heaven. I don't pay into a pension because, you know what, God looks after me now and he's not going to stop doing that because I'm old. That's my retirement plan. That's it. Closest I'll get to retiring is putting new ones on car. That's it. One of you got that joke anyway. (laughs) Number one, they give the whole life to him. Number two, they become unstoppable. They become unstoppable in everything that do. Acts 5, 38 to 39. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you. This is the advice given to the Sanhedrin we heard about earlier. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, 
You will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. That's one of the high up members of the Sanhedrin speaking to the rest of the Sanhedrin saying, let them go. Because if you're right, and it's of their own doing, their own imagining, it'll fail. But if they're telling the truth, you're going up against God himself, and you better get out of the way. You see, whatever school, prison, church, event, conference I go into, I don't get afraid because I'm not there to please them. I'm not here to please you. I'm here to please God. I'm here to tell you what the word of God says, whether you like it or not. It's not my fault. You can, you can not like me for saying it, but I didn't say it first. It was written down. That's why I like to refer back to scripture in all of my messages, because if you don't like what I say, ain't my fault. It's in there. It's in here, and it's been in here for quite some time. If you forgot to read it, idiotes. Know what I mean? So how does God want to use you to part? He wants to use you. He needs you. But how does he want to use you to partner with other believers? I use the phrase other believers because church, there's only one church. Whatever it says above the door, whether it says Roman Catholic, or it says Anglican, whether it says Methodist, whether it says Presbyterian, whether it says Methodist, it doesn't matter. New Frontiers, it doesn't matter. There is only one church. There's one bride that Christ is returning for. That's it. At the moment, pardon my French, she's a bit of a minger. She's not really worth coming back for. She needs a bit of work. You know what I mean? Needs to hit the treadmill, you know, eat a bit of celery, lay off the chocolate, that kind of thing. That's the kind of state the church is in at the moment. It needs to change. God wants to use you in partnership with other believers. How? Well, firstly, through Christ. Ephesians 3, 20 to 21 says, Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Infinitely more than we might even ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Partnership with Christ. If we're in partnership with Christ as individuals, it can't help but have that effect. It can't help but have that impact that God will just pour out things that you never even saw coming. You never thought coming. If God had laid out the plan for my life before my eyes when I stepped out those prison gates on the 4th of August 2000, I would have run a mile. It would have scared me to death. If he'd have turned around to me and said, I'm going to use you to set up an independent special educational needs school, which you're going to be the head teacher of, I'd have laughed my head off. And then if I said, and it's going to become one of the top three in the country, you wait, I'll show you. I hated school. I hated school. I found every reason possible to not go to school. And God says, right, go build one. But it's going to cost a million and a half pound, God. I know, but do it anyway. But I ain't got any money, God. I know, but do it anyway. But I don't know how to write policies, God. Just start writing. I don't know how to put curriculums together, God. Just do it. I don't have the relevant degrees. Just do it. 
He kept giving me the same answer. It was like a Nike advert on loop. Just do it. He wants to partner through Christ. And he can achieve infinitely more that you will ever ask for or even dare to dream of. Infinitely more. He wants to do it through each other. Through each other. Acts 2, 44 to 47 paints the most beautiful and yet painful picture of the church. Listen to this. Any of this, you think, yeah, I can see that in the church today. Yeah, I struggle to. See what you think. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as they had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Does that sound like the church of the 21st century to you? It, it doesn't to me. It doesn't to me. You see, God wants us united, but Satan wants us divided. The enemy wants us divided. He has from day one. Ever since his division was put in place, he's wanted us to suffer the same division and separation. And that's what he wants today. So what I did was I wrote my own version of the same piece of scripture, which I think reflects more of what the church looks like today. See if you think this sounds like a truer, if we're being honest, picture all the believers were divided. They didn't have much of anything in common. Hoarding their possessions and goods, they kept as much as they could for themselves. Every now and then, if the football wasn't on and they weren't too tired, they'd come to church for an hour, but leave early to beat the traffic. They loved Jesus when it was convenient for them, yet they were despised by people for their hypocrisy, and very few people got saved. As hurtful as it is to admit and even read, that's actually a truer picture of the church, capital C, of where we are today. And if, you know, I've run charities that have turned over lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of money. Every year you have to take stock and evaluate your effectiveness and your processes and your structures and your programs. And yet the church just belligerently just carry on whether it worked or not, whether it was effective or not. Oh, we did it 50 years ago, so we'll carry on doing it now. What business does that? If we were a business, we'd be the biggest business in the world because you know what? We have an outlet in every town, every city, and every village in this country. We are the, on paper, most effective business in the world. Or we should be, but we're not. Why? Well, because of those reasons. Because we're not a first century church in the 21st century, although we should be. So how are we going to change it? Well, I've come up with a plan. How are we going to change? We're all admitting that that is the state we're in. So what are we going to do about it? I'm watching that lady fanning herself, and I just want to nick the fan. <laughs> I'm a Yorkshireman. I was not built for heat. I was built for cold, wind, and rain, and snow. God placed me in this country so I didn't have to put up with this kind of weather. 
I wanted this kind of heat, I'd be called to Mauritius or somewhere. <laughs> I had hair when I arrived. 